Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. We start today with the growing calls to reopen the U.S.-Canada border. Now, this morning, a coalition of Canadian tourism organizations calling on the Justin Trudeau government, get that border open, save the summer tourism season. Have a listen to this now. This is David McKenna, chair of the Tourism Industry Association of Canada, and he was speaking just a short time ago here. As you can see by the presence on the screen, we stand united as an industry collectively representing over 225,000 businesses and millions of employees across this country. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, the Canada-US border has been closed for over a year. The tourism industry was the first hit by the pandemic, the hardest hit, and will be the last to recover. The industry has been crushed and we can't lose another summer tourist season. Okay, that was uh, this morning. The tourism industry's all hands on deck asking for the border to be reopened. Let's discuss now with my guest, Jay Hill, the former Conservative MP. He is now leader of the Maverick Party of Canada. Uh, they support a sovereignty option for Western Canada. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Jay Hill, thanks a lot for coming on. Uh, my pleasure, Mike. Good to be with you. Okay, what do you think? The pressure growing here now on the Trudeau government to reopen the Canada-U.S. border, especially if people have been fully vaccinated, let them travel back and forth. Same calls rising south of the border in the United States. Your thoughts? Well, I couldn't agree more, Mike. Uh, I think that anyone that's objective and looks back at the decisions that Justin Trudeau and his Liberal government have made uh, over the past year in connection with the uh, COVID virus outbreak uh, would have to question uh, the uh, appropriateness of the, the, the steps they've taken. I mean, our borders, in my opinion, would have been open long ago if he would have moved a year ago to secure vaccines uh, from reliable suppliers at that time, uh, if he would have uh, supported uh, companies in Canada to uh, produce a credible vaccine and there was companies prepared to do so uh, one in particular in here in calgary and uh, you know it's been mistake after mistake uh, by this uh, government and this is just the latest and uh, as uh, as you've been saying and others uh, the injury to our businesses uh, and in particular the tourism industry uh, is is almost un countable uh, as far as the dollar damage that's been done over the last year okay. and we should have already had the borders open okay, to be well, honest well we know these border the border will reopen at some point but it, it it's frustrating that the government continues to sort of play its cards so close to the, the vest here i mean when i just tell people what's going on there are some reports bloomberg news is reporting that the federal government could announce within days a plan to reopen the border for people who are fully vaccinated to move back and forth across the border. Justin Trudeau suggesting yesterday something is coming. So we know something's cooking here. But when you try to pin this government down, let me play this clip here for you, Jay. I find this so frustrating. This is conservative opposition MP here, Michelle Rempel Garner, questioning the federal finance minister Christian freeland and just ask her a real simple question like when will people be allowed if they're fully vaccinated when will they be allowed to travel again listen to the answer here at what date will fully vaccinated travelers be exempted from at-home quarantine the honorable minister again mr speaker i'm afraid that the conservatives do need to pick a lane do they believe in strong border measures to protect the health and safety of canadians or do they believe in something else they should be clear Okay, like, why can you not believe in strong border mem measures to keep people healthy and safe and still just an answer a simple question? Like, when are we going to get back to some sort of normal normalcy here? But Jay Hill, your thoughts? Well, again, uh, I mean, having been uh, a member of parliament in the House of Commons, uh, what you just experienced there is why it's called question period and not answer period. Yeah. Uh, governments traditionally 
try to evade questions, especially questions like that that are straightforward, uh, that would put them in a bad light. Uh, I think that the, the failure on the part of the Trudeau Liberals to enact uh, measures that not only protect Canadians, uh, but our common sense to the average Canadian is the real reason why there's such a buy-in on conspiracy theories. Uh, there's this upsurge in these freedom rallies and people that are rebelling against the measures that are taken by uh, the federal and provincial governments is because they don't make sense to people. And uh, this is just the latest example, this continued border closure to people that have been fully vaccinated. If the vaccinations aren't going to work and protect us, then why in hell are we getting them? Well, I mean, they are going to protect us, but I think what the government needs to do is just be straight with Canadians and say, look, there is a plan here. There's a way forward, and we're going to get that. But, man, it's frustrating when you ask them about it. Speaking to Jay Hill, leader of the Maverick Party of Canada. Uh, Jay, we've spoken in the past about this sovereignty option for Western Canada that your party supports. I'm really interested in your take here on the dispute next door in Alberta over equalization payments in Canada, and it's intriguing to see Alberta Premier Jason Kenney now uh, saying they intend to go forward here with a referendum in Alberta on possibly e uh, ending equalization payments in the country. Alberta is a big payer into that fund. Here's Jason Kenney speaking about that yesterday, then I want to get your thoughts on it, the Alberta Premier here. Not only is this delivering on a key election promise that we made to Albertans in 2019, it's one of the key recommendations of the Fair Deal panel. And I'm pleased we've panel members as MLA's Miranda Rosen and Tani Yao uh, from um, Banff, uh, Canmore and from uh, Fort McMurray Wood Buffalo with us today. This is about giving Albertans a voice. It's about giving Albertans a seat at the table when it comes to the relationship between our province and a federal government that continues to take Alberta's contributions for granted. Okay, uh, Jason Kenney there, the Alberta Premier yesterday. What do you think of this idea when it comes to ending equalization payments in the country, and is that even possible? Well, we won't see whether it's possible, but at, at a very minimum, if a strong yes vote for ending equalization, uh, Mike, will clearly send the signal to the remainder of the country, especially central and eastern Canada, uh, that the West is no longer going to just be uh, considered the bank account for the country and not get what they should in return. And uh, that's what Jason's endeavoring to do. Certainly we will be supporting that. Our position on equalization as the Maverick Party is a bit different, a bit more nuanced. We believe that the equalization formula itself should be renegotiated to be fair for everyone. Uh, but what he is endeavoring to do with this uh, referendum is to actually remove the whole principle of equalization from the Canadian Constitution. Right. I don't know that that's the right way to go on this issue, uh, simply because I think the principle of uh, parts of the country uh, that are doing well should be sharing with p parts that aren't in order to bring up a certain, to a certain standard uh, the, uh, the um, uh, social services across the country, be it healthcare, education, whatever, uh, is a sound principle. But it's been abused by governments, and uh, it's been, as I say, just uh, basically used for a net wealth transfer, largely from Alberta, but from Western Canada, to the central, and especially Quebec and the Maritimes. Okay, what is the current status of your party, Jay Hill, and with the, the potential for, who knows when we'll get it, a, f a federal election, maybe soon. Uh, what about this, the Maverick Party and your sovereignty option? Are you, you intending to run candidates throughout Western Canada? Well, our party, uh, well, uh, about 10 days from now, we will be nine months old. So we're very much still in our infancy uh uh, Mike, but since uh, New Year's, I'm very pleased and proud to, to uh, report that we now have 33 riding associations uh, across Western Canada up and organized and running. We have uh, now nine uh, candidates uh, in place that are actively campaigning in their ridings with the anticipation Trudeau is going to be tempted to call an election this fall. And uh, yeah. so the party is actually progressing at a fairly rapid pace. In addition, we're going to have our virtual convention, 
one-day convention in early August, and we've announced that now. So the party's moving forward uh, very progressively, and we're very pleased with that. All right, welcome back to the show. Jay Hill is my guest, leader of the Maverick Party of Canada. Let's go right to your phone calls here. Cheryl on the line in Vancouver. Hi, Cheryl. Hi there. Hi. What do you think? Well, regarding the border opening, now that we have uh, people double vaccinated, I'm I'm kind of done. We, we've been all in this together, apparently, but it doesn't feel like it anymore. And they've sensed that I have two daughters going to university in Colorado, uh, NCAA athletes, alpine ski racers, one still trying to go to the Olympics. So it's a, they've had a lot of quarantine um, because they get rapid tested once a week as athletes. If anyone on the team shows a positive, they all go into quarantine. Coming home, they obviously have to go into quarantine for two weeks. And most recently, it's just made me crazy because my daughter on her ninth week is now in quarantine and kids coming from Queens, McGill, Western, U of A, not vaccinated, not arriving Mm. with a negative COVID test and no two-week quarantine. Like, I'm going, why are they can ill afford more quarantine time when they're double vaccinated, have arrived with a negative COVID test? It's just, at some point, you get pissed off that we're not all in this together and there's a select few that are paying the price. It doesn't... Okay. Like, yeah. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, Cheryl, for a good call. And I'm glad you're able to make your points there. Uh, You know, I think at the end of the day, Jay Hill, uh, people are just asking the government for a plan here. You you know, like at least tell us that people, we can handle the truth. Just tell us what's going on. There's clearly stuff going on and planning going on in the background. So why not just be straight with Canadians and tell us when this is going to happen? Because the pressure right now is to try and save a summer tourist, a tourist season. Like, let's get going in July. Your thoughts. Well, as Cheryl said, uh, just uh, on the call now, uh, Mike, it's not just the tourist season. It's families that have been split apart and can't unite in a sensible manner. It's the hypocrisy and the double standard that we see constantly from this government. When uh, Trudeau and his entourage travel to the G7 later this week, you can bet your bottom dollar he's not going to be staying in the same quarantine hotel uh, when he gets back that other Canadians are forced to stay in and pay $2,000 while they're quarantined. It's this double standard that people are finally beginning to rebel against. Uh, And this from a prime minister that when he was running for election to become government back in 2015, if you remember, went on and on how he was going to be the most transparent uh, prime minister and government, and yet quite the opposite has happened. We can't get straight answers from them, no matter how hard we try. Their communications on the whole COVID thing for over a year has been abysmal, and that's why it feeds into this sense that, just as Cheryl said, we're not in this together, Mr. Trudeau, and it's high time we were and that you communicated clearly so that we, the people, can understand what it, it is that we're trying to accomplish and who we're trying to protect. Give us, a, give us a plan. Give us a timeline. I think that's what most people are asking for. Let's go to, exactly. Al, on, let's go to Al on the open line in Surrey. Hey, Al. Hi. Anyways, the equalization fund is a disaster. Yeah. Alberta has to pay out of their natural resource revenue when they're running huge deficits. The only thing that should be is an emergency fund for earthquakes, river flooding, ice storms, uh, forest fires, that's all. Every province puts in per population, and it's drawn out when there's a major disaster. We okay. don't need an equalization fund. Okay, Al, thank you for the call. Well, Jay Hill, is Alberta still paying into equalization even when their economy's been walloped here? Absolutely. The caller's quite correct. The problem is, is with the formula. Uh, for example, one of the biggest revenue generators for Quebec is Quebec Hydro. They sell a lot of power uh, down into the northeastern United States. That is exempt from the formula when you come to calculating the income for individual provinces. And that, while the Western industries, predominantly oil and gas, are taxed as non-renewables, there, uh, therein lies the difference of why Quebec gets billions of dollars from Western Canada every year. Okay, squeeze in one more real quick. Julie, you got to go quick. Julie in Kelowna. I'm for uh, opening up the border. I'd like to have a plan. I feel the government is very, very secret. I'd love to see my children, which I have not seen 
since the beginning of the pandemic, and I'm starting to go crazy, their mental health, they want to come home, see their family. They've both been vaccinated long before us. They're okay. software engineers working from home. Thank you, and Julie. It's a family, family reunification. Thank you, Julie. That's Julie and Kelowna. I appreciate your call. Jay Hill, thanks for coming on the show today. My pleasure, Mike. Anytime. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about ICBC's new fairness officer now, just approved by the B.C. government. The government says the fairness officer will be independent and help strengthen public trust in ICBC. The fairness officer will review and make recommendations to help resolve ICBC customer complaints about the public auto insurer, also make recommendations to improve ICBC. I wonder if this new fairness officer could be a very busy person, especially with BC now moving to no-fault auto insurance. Let's discuss now with my guest, Michael Mulligan. Michael is a lawyer in Victoria with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, does a lot of ICBC cases, and I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Michael, thanks a lot for coming on. Good morning. Uh, Always great to be here. Okay, Michael, the new fairness officer at ICBC, they used to have an office there called the Fairness Commissioner, I believe, right? So this is the new name? <laughs> yes, indeed. Every Everything okay. old is new again. Uh, so what, what they seem to have done is they've renamed uh, an office, which we've had since, I think, 2012, called the ICBC Fairness Commissioner, will now be called the ICBC Fairness Officer. <laughs> right, uh, right. And Essentially, what this person is, is like a uh, mini-ombudsperson, but only for ICBC. Um, And uh, the idea uh, with the Fairness Commissioner is that if you had a complaint about ICBC treating you unfairly, uh, you could fill out a form online, uh, and then uh, ultimately you might get some form of an investigation by the Fairness Commissioner, soon to be called the Fairness Officer. Um, The trouble is that uh, because their role is essentially like the provincial ombudsperson, but a mini version of that, uh, they don't actually have any power to uh, do much of anything about oh. uh, decisions that might be unfair other than writing a letter to ICBC or at the end of the year, they publish a uh, report. No doubt everyone is reading that uh, each night. Uh, <laughs> I downloaded <laughs> yeah, right. and looked at these things back from 2012, and I think I... I may well be the only uh, person to have clicked on those links and uh, read those reports uh, uh, since 2012. Okay, so Um, is this like a like a watchdog without any teeth, or what? So does it this fairness officer have no authority? Like, could a fairness officer overturn or reverse a decision made by ICBC, or no? They cannot, Uh, and that's one of the fundamental problems with this no fault system, right? Part of the uh, changes uh, uh, wrapped up in the no-fault system that was brought in uh, is designed to eliminate the possibility of somebody challenging an ICBC decision uh, in court, right, where you actually would have somebody who would be capable of uh, overruling ICBC and ordering them to go and do something. Uh, That's obviously not... uh, uh, perhaps much fun if you're ICBC, and so they've managed to persuade the provincial government as part of the no-fault scheme uh, to try to eliminate people's right to go to an independent judge where an ICBC decision could actually be overruled and they could be told uh, no. And so as part of no-fault, what it means is that your remedies, when ICBC makes some decision about you, uh, it would be either to go to this uh, now fairness officer, um, or uh, in some circumstances to go to a a body called the Civil Resolution Tribunal. Um, That body does have authority to, in some circumstances, overrule ICBC, but all the people there that make decisions are on short-term government contracts, Uh, and so that uh, doesn't exactly seem like it will be a a bastion of independence, right? Okay, so this new no-fault auto system is just a, a massive overhaul of auto insurance in British Columbia. Basically, largely removes the right of car crash victims to hire a lawyer and sue ICBC for their pain and suffering. Some exceptions there uh, for cases that involve criminal conduct like drunk, drunk driving. But the government says it's going to be great because ICBC is going to save a ton of money. We cut the lawyers out of the mix here largely. And we're going to save so much money. 
ICBC will be able to lower your insurance costs. And in fact, a lot of people have received rebate checks. Let me play this here for you, Michael, get your thoughts. This is uh, BC Solicitor General Mike Farnworth announcing the changes here and just talking about how awesome it's going to be and how much money people are going to save. Farnworth here. Today marks a significant milestone in those efforts. With ICBC set to apply to the BC Utilities Commission for the largest decrease to basic insurance rates in more than 40 years. With its approval, starting May 1st, drivers will begin seeing savings of 20% or about $400 on their basic and optional vehicle insurance as a result of ICBC's new enhanced care coverage. Okay, that's uh, enhanced care coverage is what the government calls this no-fault system. Um, he talked there about a $400 rebate. I got a rebate check in the mail. It wasn't $400. It was significantly less than that, but, you know, at least it's something, right? I mean, so for people who are getting rebate checks, do you think most people kind of like this no-fault idea? Well, there's no doubt people like cheap things, uh, and they'll probably like it right up to the point where they wind up getting injured in a car accident if that was to happen to them. Because the reality is they haven't come up with a uh, magic formula whereby you can get more for less. Uh, You can get less for less, which is what we uh, will now have. And essentially, they've turned the system into uh, like a uh, what you would expect from the workers' compensation border. Now they've renamed themselves WorkSafe BC. So that's the level of um, care you will get. Uh, And if you uh, are satisfied with uh, ICBC and think uh, that you're happy with them making decisions that won't be subject to meaningful review, uh, or you think you would be treated fairly or have been treated fairly by organizations like uh, the Workers' Compensation Board, now WorkSafe BC, if you're happy with that, uh, well, then this system is for you. Uh, also, uh, a good system for somebody who is a, a poor driver and causing accidents. Uh, so that would be a positive. I can tell you what I've done and what you might want to consider doing. Um, both my wife and I have purchased private disability insurance. Um, that's not inexpensive, but if you uh, don't want to uh, wind up uh, in a circumstance where your life potentially could be uh, uh, altered and you're subject to the whims of ICBC, uh, you might want to consider uh, some form of private insurance like that. Uh, Otherwise, you may well wind up in a circumstance where uh, you've got your $400 rebate check, uh, but in the uh, case of a uh, serious accident, if somebody hurts you and you're not able to work, uh, you may find uh, that uh, you indeed did uh, uh, pay less, but uh, you're, you're also going to get less. Okay. The, the no-fault system came into effect, correct me if I'm wrong here, Michael, on May 1st of this year, right? That's right, yes. Right. And, and what are you hearing about it so far? Like, how are, what, What's been the experience of people that you've heard from? Sure. Well, I mean, the, the reason why it was politically popular, and I should say it was pushed by ICBC, because from their perspective... Uh, They want to maintain a monopoly position. Uh, They were concerned about the uh, prospect of that going away if rates uh, went up or the possibility of competition in the auto market. So it was popular and pushed by ICBC, this no-fault idea. And from the provincial government perspective, it's popular because people, of course, like checks and cheap things, right? Um, And uh, until you wind up in a circumstance where you or a loved one is hurt, uh, the idea of a rebate check sounds like a grand idea. And so if you're a provincial politician and ICBC comes to you and says, look, we can solve all the uh, troubles here, no need for there to be competition or do anything of that sort, we can maintain our monopoly position, and here's a way uh, you can issue checks to people. That sounds awfully appealing, uh, and that's why we have what we have. Uh, the trouble comes uh, when uh, somebody uh, is in fact uh, hurt uh, or somebody is treated in an unfair fashion. Now, uh, if the government's uh, scheme remains, uh, your remedies right. are going to be to write to this uh, ombudsperson well, or go to a uh, somebody who's employed by the government for a review of a decision. Okay, well, I guess the proof will be in the proverbial pudding, as they say here, because the government is saying that this no-fault system will actually be great for accident victims because they've issued a schedule of care benefits with some real eye-popping numbers in there. There's a maximum limit of $7.5 million for medical and rehab services for someone who's seriously injured in a crash. All kinds of new categories of care, like travel and accommodation benefits and a, a caregiver indemnity 
and, and lump sums for students who miss school and grief counseling. They've made it sound very appealing. Are you suggesting that it's going to be inadequate, like people are going to get injured in a car crash and find out that this has just been a mirage? Yes. <laughs> the, I must say the, the language that they've used, the enhanced care, uh, is uh, pretty uh, uh, unbelievable for anyone who uh, knows how the system and facts works. Is What's happened is we've had for many years uh, what used to be called Part 7 benefits, which would be benefits for things like rehabilitation and things that you've mentioned, which would be available to either an innocent person who's hit or even a reckless driver who smashes into you. Some basic level of things like uh, you know rehabilitation would be provided, even if you were the person who caused the car accident. And so what they've done is they've taken away your ability to sue somebody uh, who yeah. is at fault and hurts you, but they've just raised up the amount that everyone would get, regardless of whether they're the innocent person or the person who caused the car accident. And so that's what's been enhanced. Uh, but uh, don't make any mistake about it. They have not in any way enhanced uh, the amount of compensation somebody might receive. Under the previous okay. system, uh, you would be able to sue and there would be no limit on what you could sue for if you were injured. All right, welcome back to the show. Talking no-fault auto insurance with my guest, Michael Mulligan, Mulligan Defense Lawyers in Victoria. ICBC has just hired a new fairness officer. Let's go right to your phone calls here now. James in Vancouver. Hi, James. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Sure. I have a curiosity question. If you run out-of-province plates, are you from the U.S. coming into Canada, is your private insurer able to sue ICBC on your behalf because you carry a different insurance policy through a private insurer, not by a monopoly insurer in BC. Okay, interesting question. Michael, do you know? Yes, that's a good question. Uh, the answer is no. Uh, the way the no-fault uh, legislation works is it essentially, in all but really rare cases, means that you, in British Columbia, cannot sue for an accident involving a, a vehicle. Um, you do, however, uh, still on your ICBC policy, need to pay for liability coverage in the event that you're driving your car outside of British Columbia. Because while British Columbia can prevent you from suing anyone in BC, uh, they can't uh, do the same thing if you were driving in the United States or in another province. And so right. uh, that's why there still is liability insurance, but it doesn't work in reverse. Okay, 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. Rick in Port Moody. Hey, Rick. Oh, hey, Mike. Thanks for taking my call. You know what? Sure. This has been a real sticker in my uh, in my craw for quite some time. And I fear, I truly fear for anyone that's going to be in a serious accident or not, maybe not even a serious accident going forward. My wife in September of 2019 was in a low-impact rear-ender. Um, she had whiplash and sustained what we would have called back then a concussion syndrome. Well, you know, they now deem it as, as brain injuries, and it truly is. She has been fighting ICBC. We have an advocate now, so we have a lawyer that's fighting for us. But Every step of the way, and, and people within ICBC change, her, uh, her caseworkers, I think she's on about the fourth different caseworker, everyone that comes on board, every new person has to relearn the case and has no knowledge of it. This is going to be a complete gong show, and I, I sure as hell hope that you know, the Lawyers Association sue these guys, take, continue to sue them, take them to court and win, because this is, um, this is awful. Okay, Rick, thanks for the call. I'm sorry for, for your trouble there uh, and when of your family and what you're going through there. But the, the Trial Lawyers Association, Michael and BC, of course, unhappy with the no-fault system, and I think they have tried to fight it, but I think they, they failed to stop it in court, did they not? Well, they've actually so far had uh, partial success. Uh, the provincial government, the legislation, tries to uh, uh, prevent anyone from being able to go to uh, court to seek a remedy. They want to limit it to this fairness officer uh, or this civil resolution tribunal where all the people work for the province who make the decisions. Um, and there was a challenge to that on yeah. the basis that uh, in Canada we have something called Section 96 Court Judges, Superior Court Judges, who are appointed federally. And the, the, the constitutional section that provides for their appointment has been interpreted to mean that you can't simply uh, take away jurisdiction that those kind of judges would have and give it to some other body, like, for example, the Civil Resolution Tribunal, because that would allow the government to 
uh, avoid uh, independent uh, decision-making in some circumstances. And so, uh, at least at the initial trial stage, the uh, trial lawyers have succeeded uh, in uh, uh, overturning a part of the ban on going to court. The province is now appealing that to the Court of Appeal uh, because right. they really don't want independent judges being able to review uh, decisions made by ICBC. Yeah, okay, that's a really important uh, ca- case that we continue to follow here. Let's go to Ross on the line in Abbotsford. Hi, Ross. Hi, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just, uh, w- want to say, like, why don't we give it a chance? Uh, I've, I've uh, experienced, and through friends, too, experienced how, uh, you know, hurt people were raked over the coals by lawyers. Too, you know, you got to look at the other coin. Hey, eh? these guys aren't the be-all and end-all, and you know, and uh, uh, I came from Saskatchewan, and uh, that no fault seemed to work. Okay, Ross, thanks for the call. Well, why not give it a shot, Michael? What do you say to that? We just got a minute left here. Sure. Well, I guess what you're giving a shot is preventing people from uh, being able to go to an independent uh, decision maker, a judge, uh, and replacing that uh, with the option of being able to go to a a uh, person who has no authority to do anything other than write a report, uh, or uh, a body which is made up of people who are provincial government employees on short-term contracts. Uh, and it doesn't take uh, yet another experience with uh, that kind of decision-making to know that uh, if you want uh, fair and independent decisions, you need to have uh, an independent decision-maker who actually has some authority. And this system clearly lacks that. Um, and uh, it simply isn't a, a fair way to approach it uh, for people. Okay. The idea of preventing people from going to court is just uh, clearly a, a, an unfair one. Michael, thanks for coming on with your thoughts today. Thank you so much for having me. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about Bill C-10 now, the continuing battle over this bill in Ottawa. Is the federal government about to regulate your social media? Could this really happen? Could the federal government really censor your social media posts on sites like YouTube, Facebook, Instagram? Opponents of this bill uh, call it an attack on free speech. Now, here's what's going on in Ottawa. The Liberals this week teamed up with the Bloc Québécois to end a parliamentary committee study of this controversial bill. It's about to get sent back to the House of Commons. Let's discuss now with my guest, Conservative MP Rachel Harder. She is the Shadow Minister for Digital Government, Conservative MP for Lethbridge, and I'm pleased to welcome her back to the show. Rachel, thank you for coming on once again. Hi there. Great to be back. Can you give me uh, give the listeners an update on what's going on with Bill C-10? We followed it here on the show. What is the latest? Sure. So what happened was on Friday, the Liberal government came forward and they decided to move something called time allocation, which limits the amount of time that we're allowed to discuss the bill before it has to be voted on. Um, And so that is going to be limited to five hours. On Friday, when they brought forward this this motion to move time allocation, of course, as Conservatives and the NDP and the Green were not impressed with this. We don't believe that it's due process for legislation. And so we fought it. Uh, nevertheless, they, the Liberals were able to bring it back on Monday, and it, it did pass. So unfortunately, uh, discussion with regard to Bill C-10 will be limited to only five hours at committee. Okay, and then it goes back to the House of Commons for a final vote where it's expected to pass. Is that correct? Yeah, that's exactly yeah. it. And yeah. one of the reasons why this is so important is because the bill is going through what's called clause by clause, which is where we analyze it at committee line by line and we determine what needs to stay and what needs to go in order to make it the best piece of legislation possible. Now, with Bill C-10, it's just been deplorable right from the beginning and it's gotten worse and worse as time has gone on. More and more problems have been found. And so I think the Liberals at this point are feeling quite embarrassed and still wanting to push the bill through, but not wanting more problems to be discovered. And so they're wanting to move this through very quickly. Okay. The government, of course, says that this bill is aimed at modernizing broadcast laws in Canada to reflect Canadians' viewing habits. A lot of Canadians are watching online streaming services, social media platforms to get their music, movies, news, all other kind of kinds of content. And the government is saying, look, we just want to make sure that we got a level playing field here in the country and that these big online streaming companies, which are some of the biggest companies in the world, are paying their fair share of taxes and they're they're abiding by Canadian content rules. 
which, which I guess on the surface sounds fine, but there's a lot of concern around the bill. Can you explain what the concern is in, about this bill, your worries? Absolutely. You've hit the nail on the head. The government is trying to pass this off as nothing more than just, you know, making the large streaming companies such as Netflix and Crave pay their fair share. But the reality is, if they just wanted that, then they should just apply a GSP to these folks or ask for a certain percentage of their revenues to be remitted to an arts fund. Like there's there's simple pieces of legislation that can be passed if that really is what this is all about. But what they're choosing to do instead is the government is choosing to use the Broadcasting Act, which regulates or, or you know, media. So right now it regulates main media, such as radio and television. But now what they're going to do is they're going to take the Broadcasting Act and they're going to apply it to the Internet. They're going to be regulating yeah. the content that we post online and the content that we access online. It's, it's extremely far-reaching. It's very dictatorial. Okay, speaking to Conservative MP Rachel Harder about Bill C-10, let me play a clip here for you from Liberal MP Julie DeBrusen on, on Bill C-10. You've debated her many times on this bill, and she was a guest here on the show a few day, some time ago about Bill C-10. And here she is pushing back on this argument that somehow the government wants to step in here and censor or control or police your, your social media feeds, and here's what she had to say. The focus of this government entirely with this bill is to make sure that we are placing requirements on web giants and not at all about social media users. And in fact, the bill has an explicit exclusion that says that people who are uploading to social media are not covered by the Broadcasting Act. So just, just to be clear, this isn't about cat videos or TikTok videos at all. Okay, Liberal MP Julie DeBruce, and I know you're very familiar with this uh, reassurance that the government is telling Canadians that, look, there's an exclusion for social media uploads, so the government is not going to go after your social media posts or regulate or regulate them. How do you respond to that? Yeah, it's, her statement is incredibly deceitful. So what she's doing is she's finessing language. So there are two clauses in this bill that would have offered protection to people had they stayed in the legislation. So one protects people as individual users. The second clause protected content that people post online. The first, the first clause was kept in. So yes, people are protected, whatever that means. But the content that those people post is not protected, which means that your video, your, you know, music, your post, that you put on Facebook or YouTube or TikTok will in fact be regulated by the government and they will determine what they want to prioritize or show favoritism towards and what they do not want to show favoritism towards. And so at the end of the day, they're going to be censoring our content online, both what we post as well as what we have access to view. Okay, here she is. Let me play another clip for you here from the Liberal MP, Julie DeBrusen, who's the Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister responsible here for this bill. Now, here she is pushing back on this argument, uh, saying, and she says here, you'll hear her say that online broadcasters like YouTube should just follow the same rules as traditional broadcasters in Canada. Here she is. They should be required to contribute to funding, you know, Canadian content, just like our radio broadcasters and our television broadcasters. This is about making sure that we're properly funding Canadian content, our stories, our movies, our, our music. And, okay. and that's what this is about. Okay. Isn't she making a valid point there that traditional mainstream broadcasters already face CRTC regulations and content restrictions? And she's saying, look, as more and more Canadians start getting their, their content from platforms like YouTube, they should play by the same rules. So what I hear her saying is that if you're an artist or a creator who is using a non-traditional platform such as YouTube or TikTok in order to get your message out there and bring about an audience and garner support for yourself, uh, you should be punished. You should be punished Mm -hmm. because how dare you step outside the regular parameters of Mm -hmm. mainstream media and use something creative and innovative and cutting edge? Well, in what world does that make sense? Why would we want to punish these artists for being successful on a platform that is outside of mainstream? Hmm. That's just nonsensical. 
And so, you know, yes, there are artists on YouTube and there are artists on TikTok and they are making amazing games in, in, in the world of media, but they're right. doing it through a non-traditional system. Good for them. Good for them. You know, I mean, look at Justin Bieber. We celebrate his popularity. We celebrate the fact that he's a Canadian artist. We celebrate the fact that he came up through, you know, just organic means. Well, guess what? In 2013, he started posting videos on YouTube as just, you know, some kid. (laughs) And then he was discovered and he became phenomenally successful. And we celebrate that. I mean, isn't that the Canadian story? Don't we want people to start from humble beginnings and work their way up and, and achieve success? I don't understand why the government wants to punish them for that. Okay, what's a better way to do this? I mean, if the if there's a, a valid argument, I, I think you kind of referenced this earlier, that if we feel that these big streaming companies are playing by different rules and they're getting a better deal, the mainstream broadcasters, that there's a simpler way to correct it you could just you could just tax them right and then you could you could put that you could have an earmarked tax or a dedicated tax and pay it into a cultural fund how would how would that work yeah so again if if what the government is wanting to do is you know create a level playing field on the monetary side of things yeah then all they would need to do is start imposing a gst to these companies that exist you know, here in Canada, but also are, you know, largely based in the U.S., let's say, such as Crave or YouTube or uh, Disney Plus, et cetera, um, you can apply a GST to them. Or if you want, you could take a certain percentage of their revenue and, you know, ask that it be put into an art fund. But but here's the thing, too, is that these non-traditional streaming companies, you know, the government's going after them through Bill C-10, and they'll be required to remit a certain part of their revenue. That's part of it, for sure. But then they're not offering these non-traditional streaming companies the same types of benefits or perks that the government currently offers to traditional broadcasters. So this isn't actually leveling the playing field. This is, again, this is actually punishing those that are using uh, non-traditional platforms and the non-traditional platforms themselves. What, what kind of perks do the traditional broadcasters get? Yeah, so it's, they, they would have the opportunity to not only, you know, do they put money into the fund, but they actually can pull money back out of the fund for producing, mm. quote, Canadian content um, right. and being able to invest in, uh, in their production. And so, again, that same type of perk, um, as of right now, the way the legislation is drafted, wouldn't actually be afforded to those that are among the, uh, the, non-traditional, main, the non-traditional streaming companies. Okay, where does this go from here now? As you mentioned earlier, the government doing a tag team here with the Bloc Québécois, bringing in time allocation on the study of this bill. So it looks like that this bill is going forward. The government doesn't seem to have backed down much. There's been a lot of controversy around this Bill C-10. It looks like the the conservative has been fierce in their criticism of this, but... It looks like the government's got the numbers on their side here to get this thing done. They've got the Bloc Québécois. They've got the NDP backing them as well to get this thing through. It, what happens now? Like, can this bill be stopped? Hmm. I, yeah, at this point in time now, it, you know, it'll continue to be studied at committee, like I said, for a maximum of five hours. Yeah. Um, at that point in time, it'll be put to the House, and then the House will have to vote on the bill um, if there are remaining amendments that haven't been dealt with at committee, then they will be voted on at the House of Commons, but not debated. Yeah. Um, and uh, and then, of course, the, the bill as amended will be voted on. From there, it goes to the Senate. The Senate will have to evaluate it. They can do their own study if they wish to do so. And then it'll be sent back to the House for, uh, for a final vote. Final question for you. How, how big mm-hmm. is this? When you talk to your constituents, do they mention this bill a lot? I mean, we hear a lot about it in the media. When you're talking to just people in the street, your day-to-day constituents, do they bring this up? Do they think that Bill C-10 is a big deal? Absolutely. Look, Canadians are understanding that this is a direct infringement on their right to both speak freely and their right to be heard. Because what the government is going to do through this bill is they are going to censor the content that we are able to post and access online. It's wrong. Okay, we're following it closely. Thank you for coming on today. Thanks so much. Talk to you soon. All right, welcome back to the show, and here we go now with mobility pricing one step closer to reality in Vancouver. Could the city set up downtown road tolls, maybe a virtual paywall? 
around the city core. It's all part of the city's climate emergency action plan. Wallop those drivers for driving into the city core of Vancouver. The latest on this now, the city moving to hire a consultant to do a feasibility study on this idea. Hang on to your wallets here, Metro Vancouver drivers. This could be an expensive ride here. And have a listen to this. This is Dale Bracewell, the manager of transportation for Vancouver. And he's talking here about studying this issue further. Here he is. We need to have a better and deeper understanding of uh, traffic and all mobility trends kind of in a post-COVID um, uh, recovery for actually the next uh, five years. So it's really important for us to, to learn. Okay, so they're studying traffic patterns. They're taking a look at where these virtual toll booths could possibly be set up. Let's discuss now with my guest, Chris Sims, BC Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. She's following this one very closely. Chris, thanks for coming on again. Thanks for having us. Okay, how would this work? Like, What do we know so far about this idea or this system? Okay, I think it's important that we back up a little bit, and it was a few years ago that some of your listeners might remember that Metro Vancouver and TransLink put their heads together. They had several days of sessions where they talked to stakeholders, and then normal people speak, that's people like me, that's student groups, transit groups, you name it. They all got together and we talked, and then they came up with a report, and now that cost more than $2 million dollars and Joy McPhail was heading that up. Uh, Back then, that's when they came up with this report suggesting that we have bridge tolls in places like Queensboro, Portman Bridge, Patello, you name it. And it was going to be super expensive. Uh, At one point, if you're driving in in the morning and you're driving out at night, they were saying that it could cost more than $14 a day to go through those tolls. Yeah. And so we need to look at what work they've done before to get an idea of what they're doing now. And fast forward to now, yeah, they're now spending more than a million dollars on a consultant to figure out where to put the virtual toll wall. Last time when we read their report that they brought out to City Hall when the Taxpayers Federation presented to City Hall, uh, they were going to plan the toll wall to go from Clark to Burrard and be bordered on, I think it was 12th, uh, just by City Hall there, and of course, you know, up at the ocean. So yeah, it would be the downtown core. This is key, though. They don't want this to just be in downtown Vancouver. They want all Metro Vancouver to be part of this. Oh. Yeah. Okay, so that would be the long-term plan. How much, like what would the system, the technology they use here, I mean, you wouldn't have a physical toll booth where you got to stop. They would do some sort of electronic uh, tracking of your vehicle and then charge you virtually? Yeah, it's pretty intense, actually. Uh, The ones that they were suggesting a couple of years ago when I was involved with this study, uh, they were talking about combining things. So several hundred very expensive license plate reading cameras plunked all around Vancouver uh, that will then automatically ding you every single time it sees your license plate go by and or government tracking devices in your car that then bill you a fee per kilometer Uh, I don't know how that would survive a challenge, a charter challenge, having the government track your whereabouts using GPS uh, for any reason, uh, much less to tax you. Uh, But yeah, they're they're seriously planning it. Okay. Other cities around the world have done this kind of thing, right? Like I believe in downtown London, isn't there like a congestion zone or something where you get walloped with a big toll if you drive down there? Yes, there is a big congestion fee for that. And I will keep in mind, um, the bureaucrats at Vancouver like to breezily say, oh, well, London is doing this. What they don't mention (laughs) is, number one, London is gigantic. It does not even compare to the population of Vancouver. Two, they've got one of the oldest and best rapid transit systems on planet Earth. And three, it costs you 50 bucks Canadian to get into downtown London. They leave all those parts out. Yeah, I mean, if you think about the tube system in London, I mean, you can go basically anywhere on a a highly developed rapid transit system, which we certainly don't have in Vancouver. But we do have a a congestion problem in the city, in this city, though, right? Well, it depends on who you ask, and it depends on if uh, what you find to be congested and what the causes are. 
frankly, if you are doing some sort of long-winded construction or obstruction on key key roads downtown, yeah, you're going to have traffic. Uh, frankly, most of the ideology coming out of Vancouver City Hall right now is just to the point of hating vehicles. That is a war <laughs> on the car. And it isn't even just gasoline-powered cars. Interestingly, as far as I could read in their last study, electric cars weren't getting exempt. Oh, I thought this was supposed to be a climate change plan. Yeah, they why, say why that. would they? Why would they wall up electric cars? Well, it's the same reason why they say that the carbon tax was supposed to be about the environment, but our emissions keep going up every year. So go yeah. figure. And it's okay, going to what, general revenue. Okay, what is the status of this, Chris? Like right now, the latest news hook on this is that the city moving forward to hire a consultant, which I guess is the next step along the road here. But we're still talking like, what, a couple of years down the road? If, and that's a big if, if this becomes reality, right? Yes, but I think it's important for folks to speak up now uh, because mm. you'll get busy, you'll be at work, you'll be living your normal life, you'll get distracted. And meanwhile, uh, these folks are hiring people hand over fist. They're spending your money to do it, and they're plowing through with these plans. And so I would pick yeah. up the phone, call your local city councillor, and phone your local mayor. If you're living in places like Surrey or Langley or Port Coquitlam, you get them on the phone and say, hey, are you cool with this? Are you cool with mobility how, pricing? How much would it cost, by the way? Like, what would be a typical one-way toll? I mean, we don't know, right? But is there any way to kind of estimate it? Or guess? Oh, yeah. I think it's really important for the folks to go read the older report and go see what it was going to cost. I'll give you an example. So the earlier report from a few years ago when they were proposing tolls on the Queensboro, Patello, and Portman bridges. Right. So if you're driving in, this is the max price. If you're driving in in the morning, it would be $6.37 going in, and it would be $8.27 coming back out. If you do the math wow. for one car, if you're driving into work five days a week, for only 49 weeks, let's not even do 52, that's more than $3,500 a yeah. year. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I mean, you're looking for looking someone, at. a daily commuter coming in to maybe driving into work uh, would really get hammered if you have to pay these these fees every single day. Mobility pricing in Vancouver with my guest, Chris Sims. Phone lines open 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell. Tim on the line, and or let's go to Donald in Delta. Hey, Donald. Good afternoon or good morning. Hi. Hi, go ahead. Well, you know, this road pricing... They're, they're planning for Vancouver is going to be a driver for businesses exiting Vancouver. People here don't know what road pricing or congestion charging is. It, it, for the bureaucrats, it's just a moneymaker because they've read like London has uh, gets big incomes from, from gouging car owners from traveling into the city. The first rule of, of, of a viable uh, congestion pricing or mobility pricing system it's having a viable and user-friendly public transit service. Right. Now, if you cut through TransLink's hype and hoopla, we don't have in Vancouver. And what's really going to be, I think what's really behind this is that they're building a $3 billion subway to Arbutus. It will not take a car off the road because subways do not take cars off the road. And, and now they, they need money for the running. They need extra money in the city of Vancouver for all the amenities trying to force people onto a subway that people don't want to use. And remember, when that subway is built, the vast majority of bus services on Broadway are going to disappear. So, in fact, it's going to make make people moving even harder with the subway. And this is what it's all about, subway, Mm. and our very inadequate public transportation system. Okay, Donald, thank you. Thanks for the call. Chris Sims, your thoughts? Uh, Quickly, on the issue of uh, businesses fleeing the city and getting out of the core, this is why they want it throughout Metro Vancouver, so they'll get you anywhere you are. Okay, what impact would that have on the economy, do you think, especially emerging from a pandemic to bring in these type of fees and tolls and charges? Well, it would just be terrible. Um, I don't know anybody who has an extra $3,500 lying around. Uh, Lots of people, around 40% or so, are within $200 a month of insolvency. And that was before COVID. So I'm not sure where they think folks are going to get this extra money. And people have complicated lives. There's a million reasons why they need to drive their own vehicles. Yeah. Let's go to Tim on the line in Vancouver. Hi, Tim. 
Hey, thanks. Hey. Well, a uh, couple things. I think this is going to boil down to a 2022 municipal uh, election. The battle lines are drawn, whether you're for it or against it. But I think it's going to really uh, bring the voters out, which I think is a good thing, whatever way it goes. I'm not in support of it, but I am in support of it if people want it, which I don't think they do. Number two, in terms of congestion, the only solution that I see, apart from having uh, more efficient rapid transit, is to kind of go to a model like the taxi drivers have. We don't have millions of taxis because there's license system. And what I mean by license system, they're numbered. And I think that um, if we had a system like that, not everybody can get a license. People today have a license, and as you say, pass away, give up your license, it isn't, you can't pass it on. And so what I mean is you're okay. limiting them under licenses, and I think that would be an effective way to control the number of cars on the road and still having the ability to drive. Okay, well, we've got we got rideshare vehicles on the road now, so I'm not sure how the, the taxi licenses would fit in there. But anyway, thanks for your calls. Let's go to James and Comox. Hey, James. Hi. Hi. Yeah, this, uh, this scheme seems really uh, ill-advised. I mean, I think about the geography of B.C. Overwhelmingly, our goods are all delivered for the province through a central corridor of roads and trucks going to ferries and so on to Vancouver Island and elsewhere. So any kind of road pricing scheme is going to capture all of the commercial vehicles that are delivering for the entire province, and that will increase the price of everything times the cost of all those commuting trucks and all their delivery costs. So I think this is actually quite a dangerously large increase in cost for the entire province's people. Chris, your thoughts on that? Yeah, bingo. Uh, you do that. Mm. You have these road tolls. And keep in mind, they keep changing the name. It used to be called mobility pricing. Now they're calling it trans- uh, transport pricing. You combine that with things like carbon taxes, that it's also on diesel-powered yeah. trucks. You're paying through the nose for pretty much everything because of this. Yeah, let's go to Garth on the line in Ladner. Hi, Garth. Hi, this is going to affect trades. Um, they'll hike their prices up huge. Also, mm-hmm. I just thought of something else. It's already happening in the trades right now. People who want cheaper, tre- cheaper tradespeople or companies, they'll have like one certified guy on site, and the rest of them will just be a guy, you know. So that'll be even worse now. So the quality of work will be crappy, and the prices will go up. Yeah, I can't see how the prices would would not go up. I mean, it just becomes an input cost for running your business if you've got contractors or anyone who's got to move around for their business and they're suddenly walloped with a tax like that uh, they're just going to pass it on to their customers let's go to mike in new west hey mike what i was going to say but uh i have a company that uh moves the tires for recycling and we're over bridges and in and out of vancouver all day long and we get paid by the tax that you pay on your buying your tires (laughs) Right, right. And I got to tell you, since the shutdown of the pandemic, we've been twice as busy. So Mm. people are back in their cars, and that's a lot to do with the pandemic, and it shows the numbers also on the the transit. Sure. Um, You know, that's a big... uh, So they're going to have to up the uh, tire tax by a dollar or two. Oh, okay, Mike, thanks a lot for calling in. Well, people already, I mean, this is supposed to be a climate change emergency plan, Chris, and people are already paying for that, right? I mean, we've got the highest gas prices in North America in Vancouver for a reason. It's because of all the, the taxes that are alre- that people are already paying yes, to drive their the car. Yes, we have the highest taxes in North America, too. If yeah. you combine all of it, it's about 68 cents a liter in Vancouver. right. right. And frankly, if folks want to help the environment, sell more natural gas to India. 250 million people there are still burning wood and animal dung. If we sell them our clean-burning natural gas, you will significantly reduce emissions. Here, they just keep going up while we're getting taxed. Keep calling me, star 9898, toll-free on your cell phone. Colleen in White Rock. Hi, Colleen. Hi there. Um, You know, it's just a thought, but um, I visited this city in northern Germany called Lübeck. And it's very uh, much the same as Vancouver, where there's bridges entering the downtown core. And what they've done is they have um, made parking lots around the exterior of the downtown core. And people actually park, and they walk downtown. And I don't find, you know, a, you know that's more conducive to the environment, as well as uh, the traffic downtown. Chris. 
lots of people can't walk downtown. Mm-hmm. Uh, lots of people have tons of groceries in their arms. They've got little kids they're pushing in strollers. They might be disabled. Keep in mind that this toll wall they want to build around Vancouver includes the, our main hospital and City Hall. Oh, boy. Okay, let's squeeze another call. Blake in the West End. Blake, you got 30 seconds here. Oh, yeah, I, I thought it was a joke when they said, call your council. You can't get through to them, and they don't return calls. You have to leave a message with 311. And I think we're being gouged to death. We're gonna, we want to have games come to Vancouver and all these things. Where are they going to park? Okay, we are in for one big fight over this. I think one of the earlier callers, Chris, predicted this would be an election issue in Vancouver the next time we elect uh, municipal council, and I think he's I think he's bang on. Your thoughts, real quick. Absolutely, and if not, we'll make it one, okay. for sure. <laughs> I'm sure you will. Chris, thanks for coming on today. Thank you. All right, welcome back to the show. Canada Day was always going to look and feel different this year because of COVID-19, but many are asking now, is it appropriate to celebrate during a time of national mourning. Our show contributor, John Jang, now has the latest on the Cancel Canada Day movement. John. Good morning, Mike. Canada Day is coming up just over three weeks from today, but in light of the discovery at the Kamloops Residential School, there is a growing movement with the associated hashtag Cancel Canada Day, arguing that this is a time for mourning not a time for celebration. And to explain further, we are joined by Dakota Bear, who is helping with this movement here in Vancouver. Dakota, for those that just don't know, what would the Cancel Canada Day movement look like across the country? Well, there's going to be um, rallies, different types of actions, events across Turtle Island, and the Cancel Canada really is, you know, there's no pride in genocide. And uh, what we're seeing is an ongoing genocide continued by the Canadian state and Indigenous peoples have been suffering through this, you know, 500 plus years. And uh, there's nothing to celebrate for us. Is it possible that this current version of Canada Day, the one that Canadians have known their whole lives, is wrong when you consider that July 1st is a painful anniversary for Indigenous communities? <clears throat> yeah, I I agree. Um, people have been ignorant, and uh, you know, a big part of that is just through the colonial institutions that have, you know, disregarded um, the past and current histories of Indigenous peoples, the things that we're facing, uh, ongoing. You can see with the uh, MMIWG two two S T report, you know. Um, it was, it's an ongoing genocide. There's forced sterilizations happening. Uh, there's birth alerts happening. You know, that's forcible removal of children transferred to another group. You know, that's sterilizing women so they cannot have children. There's so many moving pieces to this. And, of course, it's painful to see that, you know, we're celebrating at a time where we're mourning, constantly mourning. You know, there's 215 kids that were discovered and that's because we're pushing for that. We're pushing on the Canadian state to continue to search every residential school. That's not the first or last grave that they're going to find, you know. So it is, it's painful for us to see the celebration when we're in mourning. And uh, we need to see justice and we're fighting and demanding that justice, you know, on many different levels, frontline, political, you know, there's so many different levels to to this and for us as young people you know now we're in 2021 the internet social media the information is more red, readily available the truth is out there so it's really up to you know canadians to decide if they want to digest that information and that truth and once they do how are they going to move forward because you know everybody is benefiting from the lands and resource here in canada you know except Indigenous people, because we don't have infrastructure for clean water in our communities. We don't have infrastructure, proper infrastructure for housing, education, you know, all of these things that when we say Canada has the highest quality of life, you know, one of the highest qualities of life in the world, it really depends on who you are and where you live here, you know, and uh, we don't feel that and we don't see that. So that's why... We do what we got to do, put the word out, come together in unification, all peoples of the land, 
because we really need to come together to be able to move forward. Yes, acknowledge that history, but also acknowledge that this is ongoing and it, and it hasn't ended. What would you say to those that resist the Cancel Canada Day movement and chalk it up to it just being another example of cancel culture? Well, Canada was built on cancel culture, though. You know, Um, they had to cancel our culture for Canada to become what it is. You know, they had to destroy one nation for Canada to be birthed as a nation. So when we have all of the facts not opinions, but facts, you know, on how Canada became what it is today, then we have a lot of work to do before we start celebrating. The work is being done right now, and it's, it's really up to the individuals, you know. When they have that information, they have that truth, what are they going to do? Are they, are they going to become ignorant, you know, when m- their children need to know this? So we can heal together. We're here together, all of us, you know, we live on these lands. So what are we going to do to ensure, you know, if you have children, my children, you know, that they're able to move forward in a world that's just, that everybody's treated fairly, everybody has clean water, you know, a world that we claim to live in right now, but we do not. So I have no hate in my heart, you know. I understand ignorance, but now is not the time for ignorance, especially right now with all of these things happening, you know, to the Indigenous community, Black community, Muslim community, you know, the BIPOC, the Asian community, all of us, you know, are going through this, really suffering through the effects of colonialism. And those who aren't affected can really live their lives day to day, and it doesn't affect them. You know, people ask me, how did I become an advocate? I really had no choice, you know. My uncle, my my brother, my mom, my cousin, all affected by these different systems, police brutality, the child welfare system, you know, the neglection within the healthcare system. My uncle had passed away in 2016 because of the neglection in the healthcare system, you know. So I had no choice. I stand up and I fight for justice because there is no other choice for us. And yes, it is exhausting. But we hope to come together to start this healing process, to work together. And finally, Dakota, for those that are listening, that are interested in learning more about this movement, where can they find the information and the resources? Um, so I don't know more has a webpage, I don't know more.ca. There's past campaigns and the present campaign on there already. There's a lot of valuable information and backlinks to other indigenous movements uh, across Turtle Island. Uh, is a great resource. There's a lot of information online already. There's a lot of Indigenous BIPOC accounts that you can follow through social media. Uh, You know, after you do a little bit of digging and you're looking to search for that, the information is there, you know, and and, uh, our voices are only getting louder. And it seems like, you know, the more that we continue to do this work, the more people that we start to gain the support. And I think that's important. You know, the power of that social media and the power of learning, you know, the knowledge, it's there. It's already there. So once you tap in and you access it, you know, you'll have a different perspective on Canada and Canada Day and where we're coming from. And I think that's important. Uh, so I would definitely, you know, for starters, I would definitely check out that web page, uh, get involved. There's going to be, you know, I'm sure more teach-ins uh, for people to learn more about the histories and uh, the ongoing present uh, plights that Indigenous people are facing. He is uh, Dakota Bear helping out with this upcoming Cancel Canada Day movement. Dakota, appreciate you giving us some time and uh, speaking on on a lot of these topics. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me and everybody that's listening and does want to get involved. It's going to be happening 2 p.m. Vancouver Art Gallery. That's where we're going to start. Uh, We're going to have a march and we're going to have a celebration after uh, at Crab Park. So Everybody's free to join. Join us. You'll learn. Uh, we'll come together and, and uh, we'll move forward. So thank you again for having me.